Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Season 2 of the MobileCast. I'm your host, Brian Katz, and yes, we've had a long layoff, but we are finally back, and I am in the city of sunny San Diego, actually by Torrey Pines, and I'm joined by the first guest of the new season, Steve Wilson from Constellation Research. Steve, introduce yourself, please. Hey, Brian. Uh, Steve Wilson. I'm, um, I'm an identity and privacy guy. I... Um celebrated 20 years in the industry just last month in May. Um, I'm an R&D guy by training. I accidentally got into identity in an R&D capacity. In 1995, I was working for a PKI company, and uh, I discovered identity. I've subsequently discovered privacy, and I do a lot of work helping people with strategy and policy around these vexed issues of how do you know who you are and how do you make sure that not everybody knows who you are, right? So what you're trying to say is about 20 years ago you discovered yourself? I, I did, actually. It was very <laughs> validating, right? <laughs> so, and for those of you that uh, don't know Steve, you can follow Steve on Twitter at Steve underscore Lockstep. Steve, where did Lockstep come from, being that your last name's Wilson? I um, <clears throat> have been on Twitter for a while, and I met some people um, at a party about three or four years ago, and they, they thought my name was Steve Lockstep. A lockstep is a company that I founded 11 years ago in Sydney. It's a consultancy. Um, I had been in R&D for a long time, and I decided to set up my own company eventually. I sat down with my wife and um, brainstormed company names. Mostly they were bad physics jokes and engineering geeky jokes, and my wife correctly rejected all of them. I wanted to, um, I wanted to have a security kind of name, uh, but I had worked in PKI for a long time, and I was really... Um, jaded about trust, um, keys, um, E, I, all of those things that people constructed company names around. And I, you know, it sounds a bit um, kind of hackneyed, but lockstep to me means that I am in lockstep with my clients. I um, try and be on their wavelength. I try and understand what they're up to and um, deliver solutions and advice around that. Okay, so great. We're actually here today. Our topic is privacy. And um, as you mentioned, you're big into identity, trust, and privacy. But, you know, let's actually start with an easy one. Um, you and I were talking yesterday. We're, we're actually here at the Cloud Identity Summit. And so there's a lot of talk about identity, trust, and privacy. But there are actually probably more acronyms in the identity space than there are in the mobility space. And it kind of, be, you know... There's FIDO, FIDO, there's SAML, there is OAuth, OAuth 2, there's NAPS, there's PKI, which you've already mentioned, there's PII, which I call P2, there's a um, hundred different things, and you get lost. It's baggage, right? Yep. How do you navigate it? Well, not all of it matters. Um, <laughs> and some fr- you're laughing because um, we're, we're at the Cloud Identity Summit, and some... some Dear friends of mine are going to um, get cross with me for saying this. Um, it all apparently mattered until recently. Um, if you think about anything in IT, um, it, it's technical, there's jargon, there's standards and God knows what. Um, look at any of those networking standards, right? It was all engineering and weird until a long time ago they came up with what was called the OSI stack. And I can't even remember what OSI stands for, right? Open Standards... 
infrastructure? I have no idea. Yeah. It's been too long for me, although I know there are seven layers, supposedly. The point was that when a, when a complicated family of technologies mature, you wind up with a supply chain. Um, in the case of communications, it's called TCP IP. There's a stack. There are, um, there's wires at the bottom with electrons flying around and voltage and real engineering. Uh, and then there's plugs and then there's software and then there's stuff that's laid and laid and laid until you get up to something that matters like how do I send a, um, a podcast um, across the internet so that somebody can listen to it on their device. And so everything matters at, every, at, at different levels, but nobody needs to know everything. Um, so we call this a stack, meaning um, there are products and expertise and engineering degrees right at different levels of the stack. And uh, we are finally seeing this in identity. It's a long way of answering your question, Brian, but we're so seeing this in identity now. We, we know where OAuth and, um, and OIDC, where they live in the stack. Uh, we know where PKI is. We know where FIDO is. And it's all the different layers of this, um, of this rich cake that we've been baking now for a long time. So we talk about the identity stack, and um, being that we're in San Diego, you may hear on the recording the uh, fighter jets flying overhead. Uh, we're not that far from Top Gun, I think it is. But um, anyway, talking about where does privacy fit into this whole thing? You know, look, this is the mobile chat. And, you know, so I'm curious about your thoughts on mobile and privacy. And this will probably come out after the tweet chat. You know, for those that don't know, uh, Benjamin Robbins and I do the mobile biz tweet chat every Thursday at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern. But Steve is going to actually be a guest host this week um, for us. And I guess... Where does privacy fit in the stack? Well, off to the side. Um, let me tell you a story. I, I got into PKI in 1995. Define PKI. Public key infrastructure. Um, it is a set of technologies and processes for dealing with keys and things called certificates, digital certificates. Um, in '95, a lot of us thought that if you wanted to do anything on this wonderful new internet um, you would have to identify yourself with a digital certificate. The technology was expensive and awkward, uh, but it was also really cool and really powerful. And we thought that literally if you were going to shop or bank or um, pay your tax, you'd get a digital certificate. Now, a couple of businesses set up um, big businesses to, to sell identity. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people thought that there would be a natural place for them in this um, in this space. Um, a lot of banks thought that they'd be identity um, utilities post offices around the world I think about 25 different post offices tried to set up what we call certificate authorities right to sell these electronic passports they all failed um, I'd been doing it for a couple of years and I came to realize that identity was um, was kind of too big and hairy and uh, identity speaks of relationships it speaks of um, different circles of friends and acquaintances and businesses you know we um we all have different bank accounts, right? Very few people bank with one bank, and for various reasons, you have you have different uh, credit facilities, you have different banks, you have different relationships. And it seemed to me right from the outset that the idea of using PKI to identify people was kind of um, overblown. I thought it would be more useful to use this technology to um, represent the particular things, the facts that you need to know about somebody when you do business with them. <clears throat> So we call these attributes now, and uh, it's useful to, to understand that you have different digital identities in different circles, and those different identities boil down to different attributes. So the things that my doctor needs to know about me are different from the things that my health insurance company needs to know. 
They yeah. overlap, but they're different. And are different than what your wife needs to know, what your kids <clears> need <throat> to know, and what your work needs to know, and no what kidding. the town <clears throat> and everything else needs to know. So, No kidding. And when you, when you think about the way that you actually lead your life, um, you know, some of us escape into virtual worlds, some of us go to the movies. I'm not talking about anything that's even weird here, but just it's natural part of the human condition to... To, um, to have different guises. I know that when I go and <clears throat> watch my football team play, I'm, my wife certainly tells me that I'm a different person from when I'm at work or at home. So in all seriousness, we, we manage these different personae, right? So I'm coming at this from the identity side. It always seemed to me that we were over-identifying people and, and we actually had this dream of a single digital passport. It's a terrible metaphor, you know. Passports um, don't actually... Um, allow you to come and go in the in the world like we think we do we think that a digital passport would allow you to access any website but a passport won't allow you to access any country you still need visas and a bunch of other pieces to Correct. go with it it's a terrible metaphor as I, learned, as I learned visiting your country recently ah. i actually i went to i went to the ticket counter gave my passport and they said where's your visa i said what visa they didn't tell me i needed a visa Whoops. well you need one and oh by the way you can get it electronically and they Thank offered, God for that. Well, interestingly enough, they offered to sell it to me for about $50. And, you know, I actually called a friend of ours, Ray Wang, and uh, he goes, oh, no, you can log- get online and get it for 20 Australian dollars, and you're all done. And it takes about 30 seconds. I logged in on my phone while sitting at the ticket counter to check in, entered it, and there were a bunch of questions, but not very hard. And they sent me a digital, they sent me a digital thing that said, you're done. And the airline had it seconds later. Seconds later. <clears throat> but who says there's no money in identity, right? <laughs> <clears throat> hey, um, so we're telling this story because it goes to um, identity is all about what do you need to know about somebody to do business with them? And it, and it varies from place to place. Um, I, without really thinking about privacy, for a long time I'd been sort of practicing these identity philosophies and practices and and solutions in a way that would um, allow users in different electronic contexts to give up the attributes about them that matter. And that turns out to be the key to privacy. So I say that when identity management is about what do I need to know about you to be able to deal with you, privacy is what do I not need to know about you and still be able to deal with you. So who determines that? It's determined um, essentially by the relying party. Um, in, in the case of identity, the relying party bears the risk of misidentification. When you say the relying party, yeah, when you, I know, you're, right, you're going to define it here. So. In identity, there are a couple of players. There is the subject or the, the individual, and there is the relying party, which is the service that you're trying to get at. And it sounds a little bit inverted, but the relying party is the one that's actually relying on your identity. Um, because it's, the relying party might be a bank, <clears throat> it might be a, um, an online store, so um, Steve Wilson comes up to uh, Brian Katz Incorporated to buy uh, a copy of this podcast. <clears throat> I'm doing this remotely. You need to know who I am. Sufficient to be able to give me a service. And I need to authenticate myself to you. You're the relying party. You're relying on me to be, um, to be dependable. You're probably also relying on some sort of identity provider that has said, you know, you don't take Steve's word for it, um, but take my word for it, I'm the post office, I can vouch for Steve. So you have an identity provider, you have Steve the subject, you have Brian the relying party. And that's the sort of unholy trinity that most identity 
is constructed around. Yeah, but it, if we take that into the real world, you know, when you look at it, up till recently, it was all I had to do was present a credit card. Mm. That credit card was swiped, and yes, it had some information on the magnetic stripe, but, you know, they didn't always work. So sometimes all they would do is they'd manually type in the 16-digit mm. code. They would put in the expiration date, and then they'd put in three digits on the back. And that was sufficient to identify me. Um, hopefully they looked at my signature, although nobody looks at the signature now. Nobody asked you for a, can I get your driver's license to make sure this is yours? They just want to get their money. They want to get their money. And, you know, we talked about chip and pin and, you know, all these other pieces that are there. But So let's unpack that. You, you use the word identify. So uh, the merchant has identified the customer through this swiping the card or typing in the three-digit code or whatever. Now, we use the word identify in real life, and, and we use it sort of casually. Yes, and interchangeably <clears throat> with what it may right. actually mean. Now, technically, when you go into the technical world and you go cyber or go digital, we, we way overdo it. We still use the word identify, but when identity people use the word identify online, they usually really mean it, right? They're talking about um, credit checks. They're talking about passport-level identification. They get into biometrics. And um, I've always said you need to just pull back from that. <clears throat> Let's go back to unpack what happens with your credit card. You go to a merchant, you show your card. The card is actually an attribute, or it's a carrier of an attribute. The thing that really matters is your 16-digit uh, account Code. number. Yep. The card is a convenient way to give it to you. But the, the card is not just convenience, it's also pedigree. The merchant needs to make sure that you haven't just made up 16 digits and um, that you really have those numbers. And by have, I mean, you know, the numbers belong to you insofar as a bank has said, Steve Wilson's credit card number is as follows. Well, um, it, it, assuming they get the name, but in reality what it's doing is saying this number is valid. This number is valid. It, it corresponds to an account that's got some money in it, and the merchant's going to get paid. Yes. So what really matters is that, like, there's an attribute or a key that will unlock access to that account. To the money. To the money. The, the, the card is important because it... it provides pedigree around the number. <clears throat> it shows that the number is intrinsically valid because it's on a branded card. It's relatively difficult, okay? <laughs> Bear with me. It's relatively difficult to make one of these magnetic stripe cards. Um, I'll come back to that. For the layperson, not for most people. Right. Uh, so in the three-digit number that you type in on the back of the card, that's just another measure to make sure that the card is real, especially when you're reading the numbers out over the, over the phone. Obviously, about 10 years ago, people found out how to, how to fake credit cards, how to fake the magnetic stripe. So there's a whole industry of fake credit cards. The fact is that the credit card itself is just a carrier for the attribute. You still need a way of getting the attribute to the merchant so the merchant knows that those 16 bits, 16 digits haven't just been made up. So that's where smart cards come in. Smart cards are much harder to clone. Um, we've been using smart cards around the world for 10, 15 years in place of magnetic stripe. You know, obviously, EMV, chip and pin is coming to the United States now. Um, all of this, I said I wanted to unpack this. All of this goes to this issue of the merchant um, doesn't really need to know that it's Steve Wilson. The merchant just needs to know that a legitimate um, cardholder who really has that bank account or that credit card account is in front of me right now. And, um, and you're going to get money. the money for the service. Exactly. So it's, it's uh, you know, we call it identity. It's really more about attributes and, and something that's very specific. So you asked who makes these decisions. The relying party is on the hook when the identity goes wrong. 
So the relying party basically sets the rules for identity. This is complicated. So in reality, uh, merchants have these decisions made on their behalf by enormous payment systems and you know, these, these rules and payments. These are MasterCards, the bank exchanges. Right. These get negotiated over many years and they, and they evolve. But they're essentially a collective that says the risks that represented um, by credit card payment are as follows and we manage those risks in the following way. When it comes to privacy, it's a little bit more complicated than that because there is some tension. Um, all things being equal, I want you to know as little about me as possible, so that protects my privacy. But you, the relying party in this transaction, remember you're the shop and I'm the, I'm the shopper, um, you want to know enough about me to manage the risk that I'm a fraudster. So you get, you get some tension between privacy and, um, and identity. Okay, so let's try and bring that over to mobile. So privacy has been in the news big time recently. Tim Cook um, went on a uh, little bit of a rant last week, or a I should rant. say in the, pa- uh, in the past week, um, talking about privacy and the fact that uh, Apple kept your privacy. And then you have Google who released their new fo- Google Photos, which, yes, they want for their machine learning, but some people go, what are they going to do with the data they find? They know mm-hmm. a lot about you. And, you know, we can even look at that as you start looking at apps. You know, everything from um, Uber to Cardstar to all these things that you use to make your life easier. And, you know, it's interesting. I kind of look at some of these apps as what we do in real life, which is if someone offers you a dollar, you'll give them your phone number. You may give them your address. You know, if if you can get a 10% discount at a store... You start giving inf- – you don't think about why you're giving that information. Right. You don't think about why they want it, why they want to track you, why they give you a customer loyalty card, why they give you a rewards card. And, you know, and we'll get into this a little bit later about who's, respon- you know, who's responsible for privacy and all that. But take that as a lead into how do we approach this with what's going on today with mobile apps and everything else? Yeah, well, look, the first thing that needs to be said is that privacy is really about restraint. Um, You know, there's money to be made from data, clearly. Um, Some of the richest people in the world have made unprecedented fortunes from data. Um, And it turns out that personal data is is more valuable than than ordinary data, right? Um, Privacy is really about restraint. Um, There's this thing called collection limitation, which is the cornerstone of privacy internationally. It says that you should only collect the personal information that's necessary for your business or necessary for some understood purpose, and you shouldn't collect any more. Um, there are business models out there that say, if I can find data, <clears throat> like I'm prospecting, um, we don't call this big data for nothing, right? There's so much data out there in the digital world that if I can um, find a, a if I can find a vein of it and uh, metaphorically dig it up and process it into something like um, business intelligence or um, predictive analytics about what people like to buy, then um, I'm going to do that. Now, we've done it in a fairly structured way until recently. We've had loyalty programs for, I don't know what, 10, years. 15, 20 years. years. Long time. Supermarkets Shopping here cards. forever. Right. And it's always been about the data. In fact, I know, some, um, I know some traditional data analytics people who are really cranky about the term big data because they say this is not new. You know, they've been practicing digital analytics, data analytics forever. What is new is that there's so much, um, there's so many digital breadcrumbs, right? <clears throat> Everything we do sort of spews out incidental data. And um, clever people have found out ways of, of mining it, finding it um, out there in the digital landscape and bringing it in and working out what to do with it. 
Um, companies like Google, that is their business model, <clears throat> and they're pretty upfront about it. Other companies like Uber are finding it impossible to resist the temptation to take the data that they happen to, you know, falls in their laps from their passengers, um, and doing stuff with that data. So as, as an ancillary business, of course, um, Uber, in fact, says that they are actually an information business, so, um, so that's that. What Apple has done is that they have tried to really quite... You, you call it a rant. I mean, I, I say that it's pointed or aggressive. They are um, really uh, proactively separating themselves from those pure-play information companies like Google and Facebook. They're using privacy as a selling point. A differentiator. Yes. <clears throat> and that's quite clever. Some people say that um, Cook is just being clever. Um, Cook says we are a product company, and I'm willing to um, to um, salute him for saying we are going to stick to our knitting. He says that they make fantastic products. The sales would suggest that they do. And he says that we don't need to do anything more than sell product. You know, we were talking about identity and, and this thing called the identity provider. There's been a model for 10 or 20 years where we thought that you could make money out of providing identity to people if only you had enough data. So post offices have tried, banks have tried. <clears throat> for about five years, we've been looking at the, the social media companies, um, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Google, imagining that one of those would step forward and be an identity provider. The dark horse in this race has been Apple. Apple, with the, um, with the iTunes store, has got arguably the biggest collection of credit card information about anybody on the planet. <clears throat> I think it's 15 or 20% of people on the planet have got their credit card details in Apple. And a lot of us, collectively, us analysts, thought that Apple would step forward and be the identity provider, leveraging that, um, that base of information. Um, a, I've always thought that being an identity provider is... Harder than that, being a general purpose, I know everything about Brian Katz to identify you for everything. It's just not going to happen. Right? We tried that with PKI. It's, it's a pipe dream. But more pointedly, the risk involved of Apple stepping forward and saying, I know a billion people and I'm prepared to vouch for them as an identity provider, that's an enormous liability. It turns out from Cook's um, actions and his words, it turns out that Apple um, has decided not to be an identity provider, maybe ever. Um, they say it's just not core business. They want to sell phones and Where, computers. Where they say that Amazon is still thinking about that because I'd say they're number two or probably approaching number two in uh, credit cards and the like. And right. Yeah, so it, here's what you need to imagine. Um, an identity provider is a business that says to a shop, um, here's everything you need to know about Steve Wilson to go and deal with him. Now, when you are Amazon and you've got that information because you, you are, are dealing, shop. you are the shop. So it's called the relying party is their own identity provider. They um, take responsibility for getting to know the customer. They run their own analytics. They check for the credit card fraud. They've got history with all of their shoppers, and they can manage the risk. If they want to be an open identity provider and say to other shops, um, we know these people well enough that you can rely on them, well, how do you manage that liability? You wind up having to strike really complicated contracts between Amazon as the identity provider and all of those other shops. Now, it's just not going to happen, notwithstanding the fact that Amazon's in competition with those shops, so it's kind of awkward. The fact is that when you sit down and say, I'm going to vouch for Brian Katz to go out into cyberspace and do cybery things, 
with relying parties that I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do with his identity. I've, I've given Brian Katz an electronic passport. He's going to go out and do stuff with it. Um, what's the liability for me, the passport issuer? It's, um, it's, it's truly unmanageable. We don't have anything like that in the real world right now. You, know, you can use your credit card everywhere, but you can't use your credit card to identify yourself for passport purposes, for example. So it's, it's an unsolvable problem. Um, and I don't think that we're going to have a universal identity provider. I think we're going to have different communities of, of people that are known for different purposes. It brings us back to privacy. Like if you have circles of, of, of transactions, circles of relationships, um, you know what you need to know for that circle and no more and no less. So I guess one of the questions that comes up then is who owns your data? <laughs> you know, because when you start talking about privacy... I mean, I know my take on it. My take is I own my own data. And you see a bunch of people say that. But there are data aggregators out there that make their business to comb all the data sources, put that data together, and then sell it. Um, Look at elections in the U.S., look at stuff that happens all over the world. And so who owns the data? Well, you know, for privacy, um, it doesn't matter. The kind of paradoxical thing here is that data ownership is, um, is irrelevant to privacy. If you have the philosophy that privacy is about restraint, right? So um, I want my privacy preserved by making sure that people don't need to know me or they don't need more knowledge about me than what they need for their for their purpose. Um, data ownership is really hot at the moment because people are investing in analytics, they're investing in big data, they're investing in fantastic data mining algorithms to figure out you know, the deepest personal things like department stores can figure out if you're pregnant or not. Now, Target's very good at that. It turns out to be really excellent. They invested money to solve the problem of how do I figure out if a client happens to be pregnant so that I can continue to sell her stuff for three years. It's it's genius. Now, they've invested a lot of money in an algorithm that will come up with the answer, Anne is pregnant. Um, That data is valuable, and maybe Target does own it but you have to go and talk to an IP lawyer or a philosopher because the ownership of ones and zeros is kind of weird. But let's, let's allow Target to own that data because they've, they've, they're very clever, <clears throat> they're innovative, they've come up with an algorithm. I don't care if they own it or not. What I do care about is that the fact that somebody is pregnant is a personal thing about them and they're a separate to ownership. There are laws and regulations that say you're just not allowed to use information about people behind their back you're not allowed to collect information without them knowing it, <clears throat> and you're sure as hell not permitted to just use information, especially health information, um, without some sort of permission. So th- this actually leads us into a great question because you did a um, talk earlier today here at the Cloud Identity Summit, and you were talking about obviously privacy, and you were talking about you know the privacy policy of um, somebody in Aust- I, I think it may have been the Australian government that's nine thousand pages used to be fifteen thousand pages, and that was actually a social uh, networking company, okay. which is government-like in its ambition. But and I, I guess the question becomes there, if you define everything you do and it becomes unreadable and unmanageable, and you know, I talk about this all the time when I talk about policy, that you really have to do it in such a way that it is um, readable and understandable and in English for people. Mm. Um, how do you... How do people know when their privacy is being invaded if they can't figure it out? Yep. I mean, I, I can't. I can't hire you to read nine thousand pages. Now you'll go read it anyway, so I probably could. Yeah, I'm pathetic, and I could, and I could probably you know do it for a bottle of wine or something. But you know, in your case, but 
most people that they don't have someone like you. Look, um, privacy policy um, is kind of popular in a weird way at the moment. It's a topical issue and it gets a hell of a lot of attention. And the pity is that privacy policy um, has been set up to fail. Um, the privacy policies you're talking about, 9,000, 15,000 words from Facebook or Twitter or, or Google, um, they change these things all the time. Um, they are written as legal defence for the companies. I mean, let's be blunt about this. You can tell by just reading the first paragraph. It's often in all caps. It's clearly written by a lawyer, and it's written for the benefit of Facebook and Google and Twitter. <clears throat> as such, these are not privacy policies. They are legal disclaimers. And I'm sympathetic, okay? A company has um, got responsibilities and it will, it will seek to protect itself legally. Just please don't call it a privacy policy. It's a legal well, you, disclaimer. Well, you did call it a privacy policy. Well, it's because, you know, that's, <clears throat> that's the name at the top of the 15,000 words. A privacy policy properly written is a, it's a promise. <clears throat> it's like a small C contract by a company to an individual that says, look, as part of our business, we are going to collect the following information about you. <clears throat> we do it for the following reasons. Quite often those are really good reasons and they're, and they're win-win reasons. Um, you might be a, a healthcare provider and I want to collect information about my patients in order to give them healthcare. Okay? Um, I, the privacy policy should say how I collect the information, whether it's directly or whether it's through big data. <clears throat> and it should describe how I keep the information, what I do with it. When do I destroy it? So it's a it's a contract. It's a promise that says <clears throat> we understand that information is important. It's part of our business. It's part of your life. And here's how we do it. What do we gather? Why do we gather it? What do we do with it? So are there organizations out there that um, have sprung up or have existed for a while? You tell me which help people protect their privacy and help companies, everything from Uber to, hmm. you know, my daughter decides to create an app. Um, who does she go to to see, you know, here's what I should be doing, here's what I shouldn't be doing, and here's something that can certify me to say, hey, I actually do follow these things. You know, in the sure. U.S. we have <clears throat> privacy seals and trust seals, but, you know, yeah, for, I'm for, five, for five bucks I'll give you a trust seal as well. So I'm involved with the Biometrics Institute right now, London-based international body for the biometrics um, community, both um, buyers and vendors and end users. And we're developing a new privacy seal. Um, and as you say, Brian, there's a number of privacy seals. Some of them are controversial. Some of them are not written, you know, worth the money that they're... Aren't worth the paper they're printed on. Thank you. Um, so these are problematic. It's a, it, all audit is problematic, okay? Um, financial audit is, is, is imperfect. Um, security audit, privacy audit is imperfect. Well, technically, audit says you're in compliance with something, but the question becomes... Are you in compliance with laws? Are you in compliance with common right. use and decency? Are you, you know, so and again, it comes back to sometimes it's legal self-interest. Um, we have a bit of a wild west situation in privacy at the moment, and I don't think we're collectively thinking really clearly about it. Um, there are privacy sort of um, um, you'd call them privacy bounty hunters out there that will provide a service for you to show you where your personal information is and. Um, go out and crawl the web and find out which insurance company, which stores, which banks, which, which taxi companies have got your But what do you PII? do? But what do you, you do that? Exactly. What do you do with that? <clears throat> it's Wild West. What do you do then? Um, what we need is, um, is restraint. The companies that know you have got to be restrained in what they do with that information. They ought to be restrained against selling it. 
Um, now we're going to get into the controversial area of regulation, and there is a so, pretty so strong call for some stronger regulations, especially in the US, that would um, restrain what people do with personal information. So do we need laws or do we need voluntary stuff or is it the voluntary stuff has never worked or we, we don't both. actually have voluntary stuff for people to ascribe to anyway? I we don't need know. both. We need, we, need, um, we need knights in shining armour. And, you know, Tim Cook, I think, um, is uh, getting some worthy attention right now. Um, he is showing that you can build a successful business with restraint. Um, there are certainly social media companies out there that are trying to do non-advertising-based um, internet services, and that should be applauded. So maybe the market will come up with some solutions. I myself don't see the market solving all of these problems, and to that extent, this is a lot like consumer affairs. You know, there were spectacular market failures in the 50s and 60s that led to stronger consumer affairs. Um, look at Ralph Nader's work in the 60s and 70s. So you get to the point where you can't rely on market forces to protect consumer safety, and a lot of privacy, to me, feels like a consumer safety issue. So what is the responsibility of the user, the person, all that to you know, actually handle this? Yeah, it's a tough one because this is really technical. Um, there's a number of things like electrical safety and drugs, okay? So you mm-hmm. come out of the pharmaceutical industry. In theory, um, you could allow um, patients to select their own drugs, Um, and go and do biochemistry degrees. Um, You could allow people to build their own electrical equipment at home if they could be trusted to go out and do electricians' apprenticeships and understand wiring and so on. But we know that that consumers left to their own devices um, won't find this stuff accessible and they won't find it understandable. So in certain select industries, government does stand in and they say, look, on behalf of consumers, we're going to understand the deep technicalities and we're going to make some decisions on their behalf. At the moment, um, consumers are kind of left to their own devices. They need to go and understand how information flows in the economy. I don't think anybody even understands loyalty cards. (coughs) They don't understand what a loyalty card is actually for, but instead they get their 10% off the groceries and they're happy. Um, So there's an an asymmetry of, of information and there's an asymmetry of power involved. Now when you go to the really sensationally clever things, like the data mining done by social media companies, um, I was at a talk last week in Australia where somebody urged the, um, the audience, if they really want to understand advertising, they should go out and spend 50 bucks and buy some Google ads, actually sign up as a Google customer. Understand that when you're using Maps and Gmail, you're not a Google customer, um, you're just part of the business. The real Google customers are the people that are buying the ads. <clears throat> now, if you go onto Twitter and buy ads on Twitter, they'll start to tell you things like, um, do you want to target your ad according to what people had for breakfast this morning? They actually know this stuff. And um, I don't think that the, the average consumer comprehends how information flows, and I don't think they can make informed decisions. Okay, so since we're in the last two minutes here and we've got people walking in the room and it's going to get noisy... Um, where can people find more on this? Where can they find you? Where can they find more stuff on this? What should people do next? Well, um, I do my work for businesses. Um, Constellation Research, um, Silicon Valley-based enterprise innovation analyst firm, um, constellationr.com, and you'll find a lot of my information up there. My blog is at, um, is at lockstep.com.au, and I blog on a weekly basis about privacy, identity, 
um, I hasten to add that this is, um, you know, this is business orientated stuff for, for the end consumer that's trying to understand this stuff. There's really good information from places like the, the, uh, the Fair Trade Commission, the FTC in the US, around the world privacy commissioners put up really good um, FAQs um, trying to get people to understand how information sloshes around and so on. And at the end of the day, the some of the most powerful things consumers can do is that they can raise complaints if they feel as though their information has been exploited or even used in surprising and um, counterintuitive ways. You can raise complaints with the FTC or with privacy commissioners um, in most places around the world. So that's a call for consumer activism, okay? (laughs) Okay, Steve, thank you for giving me the time. Uh, We've had a good 35 minutes here, and you've all been listening to the Mobilecast, and you can follow Steve at Steve underscore Lockstep, L-O-C-K-S-T-E-P. Um, you can also, as he said, read his blog at lockstep.com.au. And you can also follow him on Constellation Research, which is constellationr.org. Dot com. I'm oh, sorry, dot com. And thank you, everybody, for a great episode. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, and, Brian. And we'll be coming, this episode will be out in a couple of days, and we'll be coming to you next week with somebody new. Mm-hmm.